0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. And a lot has changed since we last did a show. The last time we did a podcast, the big news of the day was Aaron Judge's fractured rib. Uh, It's safe to say that everything's a little different since then. The world has been struck by COVID-19. America has come to a halt. Schools are closed. We're all home. And the baseball season has been postponed uh, indefinitely. Uh, I promise we will have some fun baseball topics to get to. Matt is literally going to pull some baseball cards out of his closet. We've got a fun idea to talk about our favorite non-championship teams. Uh, but I can tell you off the bat, we at first wondered, should we even be doing a podcast, given how inconsequential this all seems? And uh, I felt that way for like three days, and now I have gone full speed into realizing we all desperately need something else to think about for me and for Matt. Baseball is that thing. Uh, I can also tell you that while this may be called a StatCast podcast for the foreseeable future, this is not really going to be a show about stats or StatCast, not that it was ever just that. Uh, it's going to be us trying to have some fun in baseball. And then finally, I can also point out this is the first time in the history of the show, over two hundred episodes, that I have done this outside of the office studio. So as I sit in a small room in my basement in Brooklyn, uh, let's check in on the other side of Prospect Park, about two miles away. Hello, Matt.
2: How are you? It's good to hear your voice. Uh, I'm hanging in, probably doing about as well as I could uh, could be doing considering uh, considering the circumstances.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I, uh, I know the feeling. We uh, Matt and I each have two small children. Uh, a piece under the age of you know five or six and uh you know i usually love working from home but i gotta tell you with the two kids running around it is difficult this is why we are i think doing our first ever nighttime recording of this show which we're going to try to do more often we're really bad about actually doing shows we usually do them like once every 10 days we're actually going to see if we can do it more than once per week uh for as long as this goes on just because good god we need something else to focus on <laughs>
2: yeah uh we, uh we we started to homeschool today um I taught an English class, or I should say, reading and, write, reading and writing class. Um, there were surprisingly few, che- few tears, so I'm feeling pretty good about uh, my first day as a, as a as a teacher.
1: Yeah, we did that too, and uh, my son Henry, who was four and a half, started referring to my wife, his mom, as "mommy teacher." So I'm going to take that as a win. <laughs>
2: um, before we get into the stuff that we're going to talk about in the show, I you know I want to take a moment to to, to say that like it's it's kind of um, What's remarkable about how much the, the, the role that baseball has played in my life is the fact that it was a baseball connection that sort of got me and my family to start taking coronavirus precautions seriously. Um, about a week ago, um, an old baseball acquaintance of mine, um, and not only like via like Twitter and social media, is uh, a man named Renee Saggiati, who is a scout for the Red Sox, a European scout. Um, he's worked for other clubs in the past, I think the D Backs, the Angels, um, and he's based in Italy on the southern coast. And he was he was tweeting, and he said like I'm in Italy. If any Americans have questions about what's going on with coronavirus, you know, reach out. So I DM'd him, and I was like, Hey, can you tell me about your experience? And we had a a really like nice, pleasant exchange. You know, I've never met him in person, and he basically was like gave a very pragmatic and reasoned just like breakdown of like Hey, here's what I'm going through. I've been home for two weeks. I don't plan to I've basically been told I'm not going to be leaving for at least three weeks and probably beyond and kind of explained it, but it was like it was not alarmist, it was just you know a a very like thorough breakdown. And I took it and I sent it to my my mother and my sister, especially my mom, who was worried about and I was like, wasn't sure she was taking this seriously enough. And she was immediately like, Thank you so much for sending that. She said, I sent it to a bunch of my friends they now are taking it more seriously. Like you should really send that to a lot more people. Um, and so I did and I got, you know, dozens of emails back from friends basically being like, thank you for sending that. Like not only like either it, took, it made me take it more seriously or I sent it to a friend and I think that they're going to now take it more seriously because of hearing just like one person's firsthand account of, um, of what's going on uh, in Italy right now. So it's kind of a, you know, for me, it was sort of like something, uh, I don't know, my my whole career has been based around baseball, so it was kind of, I don't know if cool is the right word, but there was uh, uh, something uh, special about kind of having that connection.
1: Well, I appreciate you low-key dropping that you had dozens of friends, so that's (laughs) that's, nice. No, but I received that email, and I I didn't realize the source of it, and I shared shared it with my wife, and it it definitely, uh, it drove the point home, and it seems like very slowly and perhaps too slowly, uh, we here in America are starting to, to realize that. So I I do feel like we are going to be at home for the foreseeable future the next couple of weeks. I would be surprised if I see you in person, which I don't think has happened in like six years, which is, <laughs> which is kind of weird. And then like, again, obviously, we all know that baseball is like the 400,000th most important thing right now. Uh, we don't know when this season's going to start. Like originally it was, well, it's pushed back to April 9th. And now it's sort of pushed back indefinitely. My like totally uninformed, no inside information guess is Like best case is early June. You know, like, are you are you feeling that way as well?
2: I really don't know. I mean, right now, you know, as of today, and this is sort of you know uh, we can now move into I guess the baseball portion of the show was announced that um, the season will be pushed back at least eight weeks in accordance with the CDC guidelines that. Uh, that there not be any gatherings of at least 50 people for at least eight weeks. So we know we're looking at at least that. Um, And so, you know, we'll, we'll kind of go from there. Right. And that, that would probably take that that eight weeks goes, takes you into May and then you need a little spring training. So, yeah, I think, I think um, uh, what Mike says feels, you know, in the ballpark um, give or take, but, you know, baseball seasons have been shortened in the past. This is not, this is not the first time we've seen a baseball, we've seen a, sh- a baseball season that was not 162 games.
1: Yeah, there there have been six shortened seasons since 1901. Uh, the first two in 1918 and 19 were due to world war one. And then in 72, 81 and 94, 95, there were labor related reasons. Uh, 1995 being the most recent one with a 144 game schedule. That seems optimistic at this point to even get to that. Like it's, it's anyone's guess how many games we'll play, you know, is it, 125. Is it 100? I don't really know. Um, But it's interesting to think about what a baseball season that is shorter looks like. I mean, my personal opinion is I'm not, I mean, listen, I love baseball. I like as much baseball as I can watch. I don't know if I'm crushed about not having 162 games. That's sort of like a shorter season uh, in some sense. And what's interesting is, I mean, this, this sort of depends on what you like your baseball playoffs to be, I guess. But if the season is shorter, Uh, then it gets a little more random. You know, like the longer the season, the more likely the the true talent teams win out. Uh, You could think to like a very short series, like a a four-game series, you could conceivably see the Orioles taking three out of four from the Yankees, right? Like that wouldn't be out of the question. You could not see the Orioles beating the Yankees over a six-month season, right? But the shorter and shorter the season gets, the more likely you can get to insanity. And if you want your champion to be the best team. Maybe you don't like that. And if you just want chaos, like I generally prefer in my sports, I, I think I do kind of like that. That could make things a little more interesting going down the stretch. Yeah.
2: I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a, in, in, in basketball. I'm a Knicks fan, right? Okay. You insert your jokes here, but um, in 1999, the NBA played a short season, only 50 games uh, instead of 82. The Knicks uh, were an eight seed in the playoffs. They barely snuck in. They sort of had an uneven season um, because they had, I, they, uh, they've acquired Latrell's free roll the season before, and it took them a while to mesh. They make the playoffs to the 18 and they went all the way to the finals. So as like a uh, Knicks fan. 1999 is one of my favorite seasons. You know, it was like kind of chaos. It was an seed that kind of snuck in. And every, even when the, when the playoffs started and they were the 18, everyone was like, uh, they're not really an seed. This is, this, this team is way too good. And sure enough, they beat the heat. Um, they beat the Hawks. They beat the Pacers, the famous Larry Johnson four point play. So, um, Short season, not all bad. There can be some cool stuff that comes with a short season.
1: Yeah, and I'm wondering you know, who that might be. You know, like, if you think about the Rays, they already had a decent shot of taking out the Yankees, and now this seems to improve it a little bit. Although, I guess as I say that, now the Yankees will potentially be healthier. <laughs> so, I don't know. But here's what I really wanted to talk about for a second. If you think about the big trade of the, the last winter it was the Mookie Betts trade, right? The Dodgers got Mookie Betts and David Price. And it was a great trade for the Dodgers because it was seen as like the move they had to make to finally get over the hump and get that ring. Um, but it was also kind of funny because it seemed to a lot of us somewhat irrelevant for the first six months, right? Like they were going to win the division with or without Mookie Betts. That was a trade just for the postseason. But if the shorter season inserts more randomness and more volatility... And now maybe the Diamondbacks or somebody have a better shot. You know, it's it's bad for the Dodgers in the sense that they paid a decent price for just less time of rookie bets. But also maybe that time is more meaningful now. If the regular season means more, then his time actually is somewhat more valuable. I'm not sure if I just twisted myself into a logic pretzel there, but I think you could conceivably make that argument that he is somehow more meaningful than he was uh, in the past, which... I think it's a really weird
2: way to look at things. No, I think it makes perfect sense because um, now you're hedging against – you're basically hedging against randomness a bit. You know, like without moogie bets, the chances of the D-backs or the Padres sort of t- overtaking the uh, Dodgers in an abbreviated season was greater. And now it's like they're just so good, it seems nearly impossible um, for – for for that to happen. I think when I think of like the unlikely teams to sort of make it into the playoffs, it's more back to the teams we've we've spoken about a lot recently on the podcast, like the blue Jays and the white Sox, as teams that like could make a wild card run just because of the high end talent and like breakout talent that they have that maybe like might not be able to sustain itself if you played 162, but
1: anything shorter could do it. Yeah. It's also going to lead to some really interesting leaderboards uh, at the end end of the season and the guys who are atop the leaderboards. My first thought and I, I realized that this was totally wrong as soon as I, I thought it, but I'll say it anyway, was, oh, interesting. Maybe we'll see a Cy Young winner uh, with, like, nine wins, right? Because we've seen 11, 12 wins in the past. And then I remembered that there are actually relievers who have won because of ERA and saves and probably only had, like, two or three wins in the first place. But if you stick to starting pitchers, it could be hilarious to see a guy win the Cy Young, you know, eight and three or something like that. Or the home run leader having 24. Five home runs which I, I mean you could probably go back to certain 162 game seasons and that was actually true but in the way baseball is played now that would be weird and then you had an interesting thought and I was surprised I have to say that you did not mention Luis Arise when you mentioned this to me with a shorter season could someone hit 400 um, I'm going to say no absolutely not but I, I would like to hear you make your case first
2: I was actually, even though I didn't say it when I mentioned it on Slack earlier today, I was going to bring up Luis Arias on the podcast today. That was my (laughs) plan, to bring him up as, like, the stealth candidate to hit 400 in such a scenario. Yes, I still don't think it's going to happen just because the way the game has changed, but, like, it becomes a lot more likely. And yes, of course, there would be, like, a lot of hand-wringing, which is now why I'm, like, rooting for it, because the idea of, like, you know, someone hitting 400 with, you know, 400 plate appearances or whatever um, would free people out. But, you know, if they qualify, quote-unquote qualify for the batting title, it would still kind of, um, I guess it would still, you know, count if it was enough, you know, in, in a
1: season. Well, I looked back because I figured, okay, obviously, you know, it's very hard to hit 400 over a full qualified season. And what I did was I kept lowering and lowering the plate appearance threshold. And I figured, well... You know, at 400 plate appearances, I'll find somebody. At 300 plate appearances, I'll find somebody who did it. And I kept going lower and lower and lower, uh, and I couldn't find anybody until I dropped all the way down to a minimum of 150 plate appearances, uh, setting aside, you know, the guys, Ted Williams and the guys from the 1920s who, who did this in a very different game. The last guy to hit 400 was Bob Hazel of the 1957 Braves. He did so in 155 plate appearances. That's it. He came up July 29th. He hit 403, 477, the 649 slugging, and a 420 Babbitt. He was out of baseball three years later, but that was as low as I had to go to find somebody who could do it. And now I'm not including guys you know, who maybe did it during a stretch of 300 plate appearances in the middle of a, a larger season. I get it. That's possible as well. But it seems to me if no one uh, since 1957 who has had more than 155 plate appearances could do this, it can't be done. I'm going to put my foot down and say, uh, not that it won't be done, but that it can't be done. But there have and,
2: players, there, but, but there have been players who've like hit been over 400 through like longer stretches of the season. is all I'm saying. Well, that's what I'm saying. I
1: didn't look that up that quickly. But even like you know Tony Gwynn in '94 before the strike, he was last above 400 on let's see May 15th, and then he kind of hovered in the 370s, 380s, got up to 394. Uh, but that it wasn't like he was at 400 when the season ended. He was done after May 15th.
2: In ninety four, I think I want to say ninety three. John Elrod was there for a while, as in, in ninety four, Paul O'Neill was there for a while longer. They were they actually were four hundred later than, than Gwyn Gwynn was, just that like Gwynn ended up higher when the season, when the season was done. So yes, I don't think it's going to happen, but it,
1: it it opens up the possibility. It does, and I mean it's hard to I guess speculate without knowing the number of games, right? But let's let's say let's keep it simple and say eighty or 81 so we could just have a half a season right um how many great one half of a seasons have we not noticed because the first quarter was bad and the final quarter was bad you know and the middle half was was fantastic and those are the sort of things that, you know you just just don't notice and like you know what these small samples are going to kind of mess things up because if you're on pace for a record you'll say okay well it was only half a season and with the possibility, I guess, that even when the games come back, maybe they're not all in major league parks, park factors are going to be an absolute mess. You know, imagine if you are actually playing like in, if you're the Mariners or whatever and you're playing in Arizona parks for the first month. And again, I'm just speculating, I don't know that that's true. Um, that's going to be difficult, I guess, let's say. <laughs> so the, the thing is, we're, we're not going to know for a while. That's that is the complication here.
2: One note, John O'Leary in '93. Was at 400 going into play on August 3rd, which is kind of wild when you think about it. Um, and then he fell below and never, never got back up there, never got back there again. Speaking of weird leaderboards in short seasons, I actually went started looking at the 1981 leaderboard um, to sort of explore some some weirdness because that's like kind of the like classic uh, MLB shortened season. Where there was a lab, uh, labor strife and they split it up into two halves and they had, like a whole special playoffs. But in 1981. This is kind of wild to think about now. Tim Raines, who only played in 88 games, I think they played in total 109 games. He only played in 88 games. Tim Raines, as a rookie, had 71 stolen bases. And I'm sorry, in how many games? He played in 88 games oh, as a rookie God. and had 71 stolen bases. Um, so it's kind of like a wild what if of like what would have happened in 1981? if Tim Raines had played a full season and it's also kind of interesting that the next year is the year that Ricky Henderson stole 130 bases. So it's almost like Ricky Henderson was like, okay, I see what this Raines kid is, do- Raines kid is doing. I'm going to take this to another level because Raines uh, is like basically rate. Right, he was basically over a full season. He was basically gonna have stolen like 140 something bases.
1: <laughs> yeah. I
0: mean,
1: I'm trying to think through who that might be. Like, you know, it, you could do a lot of things over half a season. So what if Aaron judge hits like 35 home runs in half a season, which you could easily see happening. Well, I mean, that that
2: was the big thing in 94, right? There was the 94 strike. And at the time, you know, Matt Williams was like on pace to break Roger Maris's record in 94. It's kind of crazy to think about now because like, I'm sure some of our, our, uh, our listeners who are a little younger than us are like, wait, what Matt Williams, who was, but yeah, Matt Williams had like 40 home runs in August, 47 home runs in August when the strike hit. And, um, It doesn't get nearly as much attention as Gwyn's quest for 400, uh, but um, he was definitely within striking distance of uh, setting the home run record and never got a chance because of the strike. And that's kind of like you get some of these, these, you know, you get these unanswerable what-ifs that I think are kind of fun, you know? In some ways, like Tony Gwynn is almost like that season is almost more famous because he didn't hit 400.
1: Wait, do you think people don't know about Williams now?
2: he's not like a hall of famer. So I think that, yeah, I think that he's not, I don't think he's someone that like younger fans definitely know. as like, Oh, that guy was like a really good
1: player for a long time. I I can tell you that my version of that when I was a kid is, you know, growing up, I knew Davey Johnson as the manager of the Mets, right. And then a bunch of other teams. And I also knew separately that there had been a Dave Johnson in the early seventies who had one wild season where he hit 43 home runs and never hit 20 in any other season. and I did not realize that was the same Davey Johnson, uh, Probably more years than I, I care to admit. <laughs> because,
2: well, I think what, I think you know when I was a kid, I would like I would think of old players, and it was basically like if they were, I was like in my head, it was almost like, oh, they're a Hall of Famer, then they're great, and if they weren't Hall of Famer, then I was like, ah, eh, like like I guess whatever, who cares? But like, there's a lot of players who are great players who are not Hall of Famers. <laughs> like, but in my head, there's so there's there's like a, for a long time, there was like a lot of players in like the 50s and 60s and 70s who just like, I didn't really think that much about, because I was like, well, to make the Hall of Fame. How good could he have been? Um, so Matt Williams is kind of probably would be like, so, kind of someone who falls into that uh, category. And when we do our own version of let's remember some guys with my baseball cards in a few minutes, um, there'll be a couple of examples of that that come up as well.
1: I am so excited to to hear what baseball cards you have just dug out of your closet, because a lot of times I know like the, what the topics is going to be. I definitely don't know here. But before we do that, I, I want to ask a question. Um, That I think would actually be really interesting. I like to hear some listeners on this too. What was your favorite uh, non-championship and/or losing team season? Right, like if you're a Cubs fan and you're asked what's your favorite season, you're probably going to say you know 2016, right? Uh, But I want to know like did somebody say you know what I really liked 1982? That season ruined, you know. So I I have I have a couple different answers. But let's start with you, Matt. What was your favorite losing season? Like what what terrible team did you just truly enjoy and why?
2: Um, the terrible team that I truly enjoyed was the 2004 Mets uh, <laughs> um, and the reason why is that that's like when it's the year that David Wright came up um, and so it was kind of like okay we're terrible but this is now like a team like this is like and also um, Jose Reyes was up that year as well though we missed a lot of time because he was hurt that was the disastrous Jose Reyes the second base exper- <laughs> experiment Kaz, Kaz Matsui <laughs> but it was just like a weirdly like terrible team. Plus it had, it was also the other tried Mike Piazza at first base. Um, But it was also like David Wright came up and it was like, okay, even though this team is terrible, they are eminently watchable every night for the second half of the season, because like there's this, this guy's coming up and he's like going to be our future. And that was really cool. Um, There was also a bunch of other random things that happened on that team um, that just stood out to me. For example, um, Eric Valent was oddly amazing on that team um as like a sort of fourth outfielder and he was like a he was like a first round draft pick many years before by the Phillies who was kind of just flamed out and really didn't amount to much and the Mets picked him up the minor league phase of the rule, of the rule rule 5 draft and he ended up hitting 267 337 41 in 300 plate appearances including hitting for the cycle in a game so it was just like this random dude that showed up and was good and uh I was a big fan of Eric Valent. in fact back when Sponsoring baseball reference pages was a thing. I sponsored his baseball reference page for a long time. So um, the two thousand four Mets uh, is definitely my answer for a terrible team that I thoroughly enjoyed. Oh, there was also they at the end of the year they had a, they spoiled the Cubs in front of the playoffs in like a September game where Victor Diaz, who Mets fans, he he was known as Mini Manny because he like there the idea was that he was going to be the next Manny Ramirez. Um, we were desperate folks. Um, he. Uh, <laughs> He actually came from the Dodgers in like, um, I want to say, I will just look this up now. He he was a Dodgers prospect who they got in the trade, uh, traded by the Dodgers with Cole Strayhorn and Jose Diaz to the Mets for Jeremy Burnett's and cash on July 14th, 2003. Um, but he was just this guy who couldn't play defense, but hit a lot of the minors. And so there was this game in late September where he hit a game time homer on the ninth, um, to tie it against Latroy Hawkins, and then in like the eleventh or twelfth, Craig Brazell, who was just this like four A slugger the Mets had in their system for years, but I think went on to Japan and hit like uh, two hundred homers, uh, hit a walk off homer, and basically ended the Cubs uh, the Cubs uh, playoff hopes. So two thousand four Mets is my answer, Mike. Uh, so I'll go with that for my losing team answer, and I'll I'll throw it back to you for what is your 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 favorite losing team.
1: Well, I think it shows that we are of similar ages that my favorite losing team was the very next year. <laughs> The 2005 Dodgers, uh, who were an objectively terrible baseball team. They went 71 uh, and 91. So uh, as, back, the two,
2: as did the 2004 Mets.
1: Yeah, well, there you go. And, by the way, they, they had some uh, coexisting players, right? Mike Piazza played first base because the Mets had Jason Phillips catching. Well, Jason Phillips got traded to the Dodgers after the season, I believe, with uh, Jay Wong So, or for Jay Wong So. I can't even remember. Um, But the reason that the, the 2005 Really atrociously bad Dodgers are a team I will always love is because I grew up a Dodger fan uh, on the East Coast. I'm from New Jersey. I'm not from L.A. I was a Dodger fan because of 1988, and I remained a Dodger fan through the 1990s. Mike Piazza, uh, to this day, is my all-time favorite baseball player. But because it was the 90s and technology is not what it was now, there was really no way for me to watch Dodger games regularly. And the first time I was ever able to watch... Dodger games every night, and more importantly, listen to Vince Scully every night, was in 2005, where I was still living in Boston after graduating college. And one of the guys I was living with happened to be a Padres fan who desperately wanted to watch the Padres. At the time, you know, MLB TV was like in its infancy, and we probably didn't have high enough speed internet to support it anyway. So he signed up for Extra Innings, which is like the cable version of that. And it wasn't a personal account that goes to the whole house. And that was the first time I ever got to watch the Dodgers every night, listen to Vince Scully every night. And that team was also pretty funny because the year before, the 2004 Dodgers had hired Paul Podesta, which like at the time was this massive thing. You hired the nerds, you know, the right hand man of Billy Bean and all this. and Bill Plaschke and all the LA Times just despised him. Uh, The 2004 Dodgers were pretty good. They won 93 games. But the 2005 Dodgers, uh, they were just really poorly constructed if you want to remember some guys, that's probably overstating it. You won't remember these guys. Uh, Norahiro Nakamura, their big Japanese import, 17 games, hit 128. Uh, Jason Grabowski, maybe the worst baseball player I've ever seen. Jose Valentin, uh, Jason Repko, who was around forever. Oscar Robles, uh, Hesop Choi, who, by the way, Hisop Choi got such a raw deal from Jim Tracy. If he had played now like this high on base, Power hitting guy with a low batting average, he probably would have been okay. Uh, this is the team with Milton Bradley playing center field uh, at about the time we all learned that Milton Bradley was uh, kind of a lunatic. Uh, JD Drew had a monster season and everybody hated him. JD Drew hit 15 homers, driven 36 RBIs, looked like he didn't care, care and everybody hated him. Meanwhile, JD Drew had a 412 on base and a 520 slugging percentage. Um, so what happened was. At the end of the season.
2: By, by the way, I'm, I'm looking at the, uh, the the baseball reference page now. Basically, if you look at their top 12 players by war, almost none of them are guys you actually would associate with the Dodgers as their primary team. They're all just kind of like guys throwing. Jason Jettie Drew was second on the team in war despite playing in 72 games.
1: Yeah, it was it was just an objectively very bad team. They had an early version of uh, Jason Worth, you know, who before he became this big star. And... Um, you know, it's funny. I'm just looking at some of these these pitcher names now, like Jeff Weaver and Derek Lowe. Okay, DJ Holton, who was a Rule Five pick, uh, and then I think Dwaner Sanchez, who eventually got traded to the Mets and then like got into a taxi accident or something and basically you know ended his career or something. Anyway, there's,
2: there's still Mets fans who believe that 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 cap accident cost the Mets the 2006 World Series.
1: <laughs> yeah, Mike Edwards. I just I just I watched this team so much, and there is, as I get to in a second, a direct line between this garbage team. Uh, and my future career. So at the end of the season, Paul De Podesta gets fired, like the end of October, and then Frank McCourt was the other time brought in Ned Colletti. And the next year, the Dodgers were were pretty good. You know, eighty eight wins, uh, won the wild card, I think, and that was actually the year they went to play the Mets and had the two guys thrown out at home plate. And the Dodgers were they were successful after that. Like 'o seven was like fine, but you know, in, in the next year, in 08 and 09, they got to the NLCS both seasons. Anyway, uh, while they were successful, they almost seemed like they were successful in spite of themselves. And, you know, Ned Coletti was the guy who signed Juan Pierre to a big deal and benched or, or would not give, you know, a young Matt Kemp and young Andre Ethier their chance. Um, and as was the style at the time, I started a blog and I started writing about the Dodgers and how infuriated I was by those moves. And now... 13 years later, here I am actually writing about <laughs> baseball. So I will always, always, always remember that trash 2005 Dodgers team and Odalis oh, Perez and Mike Edwards and Cesar Torres and all of you guys. Thank you for being so terrible. <laughs> uh,
2: that's, I, I didn't realize that that was the direct line to your uh, your current baseball running. So, yeah, that's that's awesome.
1: Uh, what about your team that was good but didn't win at all? So you can't throw out an 86-mets here on me.
2: 99 Mets, no question. Um, I'll keep it brief. Um, just a highly entertaining team, uh, really amazing lineup, and just in that the playoffs that year, even though they didn't even, even though they didn't make the World Series like the 2000 team did, I think it was a better team, and they had just like some some amazing wins, um, most notably the walk off single from Rob Ventura uh, against the Braves in the NLCS. So uh, yeah, that's an easy answer for me.
1: How about for me, you? me, it was excellent. Actually- uh, it was actually the the 2009 Dodgers, as everybody knows. It's been quite some time since the Dodgers have last won a World Series, and setting aside like the last two or three years when they've obviously been like astoundingly good. If if you look back from let's say the 04 to 2016 versions, uh, the team that I always thought was the best one, the one that should really have pulled it together, was that 2009 team. Uh, 195 games. You know, Matt Kemp was breaking out as a superstar. Clayton Kershaw was. I won't see, 21, right? But he was breaking out as a star. They had you know, Hiroki Kuroda, who I loved, and Jonathan Broxton back when he was really good. Uh, you know, Russell, like, it was all these young prospect guys that came up at the same time, like Russell Martin and James Loney and Kemp and Ethier. They still had Manny Ramirez uh, in left field. This was going to be, like, the team. You know, it should have been the team. And then uh, they go to the playoffs, and they beat the Cardinals in three, and then they go to play the Phillies, and they just get smoked. They drop four out of five. I will never forget Jonathan Broxton like, walking off the mat and giving up the, the walk-off on one of those games. That was the team that should have broken the streak. And here we are more than a decade later, and they don't have a title. And we don't know if there's going to be a title this year. So 2009 stop, Dodgers. Stop, that, stop that talk, Mike. <laughs> stop that talk, right. Um, there is some actual baseball news we can get to for a second. Um, like I said, this isn't going to be super has focused for the immediate future, uh, but uh, at the Saber Analytics conference uh, last weekend, which was mostly done remotely through video conferencing, uh, understandably, uh, a team of our colleagues announced the new Hawkeye tracking system, which I think is going to be very cool. And I'll just give you a brief overview of it here. StatCast to this point has been, the hardware has been a TrackMan radar and a, uh, a couple of Chiron Hego cameras. It's worked pretty well, but, you know, obviously it's missed some tracking. Some of the balls don't get tracked in the way you want. So moving to Hawkeye, who does the instant replay for tennis that you've probably seen, it's better because it's just one vendor. It's not three vendors, you know, baseball and two other vendors that you have to talk to. And supposedly it's going to track more and do some really, really cool things like limb tracking. We've always wanted to get to how who actually swings the bat the fastest. We've ever had that before. You know, who jumps the highest, all this kind of stuff. Uh, we do actually need baseball to be played to take advantage of this, but that's going to be super exciting. The other thing is uh, our friend Darren Wilman, who runs Baseball Savant, dropped a metric we've been talking about for probably two years, which is called expected ERA, XERA. It is very simply expected weighted on base translated to an ERA scale. Um, that's easily because... A lot of people don't know what XERA is or what WOBA is, and they just want to compare it to ERA. So that's up now. That's cool. Uh, You can do things like, say, Edwin Diaz had a 559 ERA. That's terrible. But his expected ERA was 333. You know, it's sort of like FIP, but with quality of contact included. Uh, You could show that, you know, Blake Snell. This is my favorite one. Blake Snell, over the last two years, his ERA was 189 when he won the side and 429 last year. You might think, enormous difference. If you look at his expected ERA, it was 306 in 18 and 302 in 19 because his strikeout rate was identical. His walk rate was identical. His hard hit rate was identical. Uh, basically, what happened was that he had one really atrocious start last year where he allowed 600 runs in the third of an inning that spiked his ERA. Uh, and also, the defense behind him was pretty good in 2018. And while he was on the mound, at least in 2019, it was below average. You know, So he was never really a true... 189 pitcher and he wasn't really a true 429 pitcher either and this is somewhat similar to FIP or or DRA but anyway that's all available and that's cool you know we're going to try to keep actual baseball news coming up um Matt please go into your closet dig up some baseball cards hit me what do you got
2: well yeah Mike and I were talking about what we could uh talk about in the podcast and uh in trying to reorganize a little bit in the as we sort of you know putts around our, uh, our homes as we are basically self-quarantined, I found an old box of baseball cards and I thought, wouldn't it be fun if we kind of did our own version of, you know, the old dead spin, let's remember some guys. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, quiz Mike, I'm going to try and quiz Mike a little bit and see, and you obviously can play along at home to see if you can maybe guess some of these cards. Um, so, uh, we're working exclusively from the tops 92 and 91 sets. So that would be the 90 and 91 seasons that will be counted for in these, uh, in these trivia questions so let's start with a card that i pulled with a from the 91 set uh a record breaker card so what record what notable record was broken in the 1990 season
1: um did ricky set the stolen
2: base record uh you mean the all-time record yeah um that's a good guess but that is not the record in question
1: can, can you uh, give me a hint if it's pitching or hitting it's, it's pitching um, a pitching record set in 1990. I, I'm going to need one more hint. Was it a career record or a seasonal record? Season record. Um, Bob Welch's 27 wins.
2: No, that is another, that is another good guess. No, the, re- the record breaker is Bobby Thigpen, 57 saves. 57
1: saves. saves. <laughs> yep.
2: There you go. I, w- I would have gotten there. I promise that. <laughs> the, uh, the, the back of the card reads Chai Sox, Bobby Thickpen's 57 saves. 57 saves stands as lofty record, which may last for the ages or until 2008 when Francisco Rodriguez saved 62 games for the Angels. I'm Um, pretty
1: sure that when I was a kid, so that I would have been nine years old then, and obviously not knowing any better, I'm pretty sure I thought Bobby Thigpen was the single greatest reliever who ever lived, not just because of the 57 saves, but because uh, RBI Baseball 3, which I played the hell out of, had 1990 stats and he had a 183 ERA. So just based on that, I was like, this guy rules. He's unhittable. No video game guy can touch him. How much we've learned over the years. I
2: didn't quite reason, realize the extent how much his career kind of flamed out after that. He saved 30 games the year after, but with a 3.49 ERA. And then the year after that, he had a 4.75 ERA with 22 saves. And then he saved two more games in his career and was uh, he was out of out of the majors by age 30.
1: He must have gotten hurt, I assume, but I don't. Remember. Yeah, I
2: think that uh, I think that's uh, that's fair to say. So next one, uh, tops ninety-one, a future star from the Brewers. So ninety season. This is a deep cut. So, but uh, I saw future star. I was like, ooh, future star, and I was like, oh, let's see if Mike remembers this guy.
1: Uh from the nineteen ninety Brewers. Uh, yeah. A pitcher or a hitter. Hitter. Uh, Greg Vaughn. <laughs> no. <laughs> you're never, you're never gonna get this. Uh, Tim McIntosh? Um No, no, you made that up. I've been, I've been trying not to cheat. I have not been using Baseball Reference, but, but now I am because that's not a real one.
2: Tim uh, Macintosh, uh, according to Topps, one of his big, Tim's favorite activities is weightlifting. Uh, Tim
1: McIntosh has a World Series ring. He got into three games, his final three major league games for the nineteen ninety six Yankees. There you
2: go. Um, <laughs> next. <Jake> next <laughs> Next one, uh, one of the most unlikely – 1991 tops, one of the most unlikely all-star game starters ever.
1: Oh, God. What am I, Tyler Kepner? I don't know. Um, uh, No, wait. Uh, uh, The Reds guy, Uh, Jack Armstrong. There you go. Yes. (laughs) Circle gets the square. (laughs) All right.
2: Um, I'm proud of myself for that jack was born in neptune new jersey my father was also born hey. in, uh, in neptune new jersey which i believe is close to where you're from It's like 10 minutes away yeah i'm from brick and, and then I, I went and looked and i was like oh where was where was uh where was uh he drafted and john john burkett i uh, sorry uh jack armstrong was drafted damn it i just gave away one of my next ones um <laughs>
1: I have a great Tom Brinkett
2: story, but it is not safe for work. Pop podcast. It turns out Jack Armstrong was drafted in the third round of the 1986 draft, three picks ahead of Tim McIntosh.
1: It's it's all coming together. Listen, I'm just happy I got one. I didn't want to go over from here. Uh, speaking of early flameouts, he starts the All-Star game. He is out of baseball by 29.
2: Um, and then his son is a high draft pick a couple years ago. I don't even know where he is right now. Um so anyway, yeah, the next one, I just, I just gave it away because I was looking right at it is, uh, is John Burkett, but, uh, so I won't even quiz you. John Burkett, fascinating story as I've learned since I went down the uh, internet, uh, internet rabbit hole recently. So I had this memory of John Burkett. This is the thing broadcasters used to always say about him when he pitched. You remember what it, what it was you say about John Burkett, He pitched for the giants on uh, the 93 giants actually won 22 games. That was the year they won 103 games. that didn't make the playoffs before the expanded playoffs. Um, do you remember what broadcasters, at least I should say, broadcasters I watch used to always say about John Burkett?
1: I can confirm I do not.
2: Um, that he was an avid bowler and that he used to have this, like, he used to stand on the mound almost like a bowler. Like, it was almost like, you know how bowlers, like, hold the ball in front of them with, like, straight straight in front of them, like, very stiff before they, like, start their windup? And it was always like, well, John Burkett is an avid bowler and that's why he, he stands up in his windup like that. It's like an ode to his bowling days. So, I actually went and looked them up to make sure I was like, did I really remember that right? Is that really true, the John Burkett bowling thing? Well, as it turns out, John Burkett is now a part time professional bowler. No kidding. <laughs> With 32 perfect games to his credit.
1: That is amazing. Wait, I am actually going to tell my John Burkett story really quick because when will I ever get this opportunity? I'll just clean up the language a little bit. Uh, my first baseball job was in 2003, my senior year of college at Boston University. I was an intern at NESN, the New England Sports Network, and I did a whole bunch of different things. But one of those things was at the end of the game to escort the player of the game up to the studio, which at the time was in Fenway for the post-game interview. John Burke, that year, 2003, was 38 years old in the final year of his career, and I guess he had pitched a, a decent game at some point. So I escorted him up. Just small talk, you know, nothing really to it. We get up to the studio, the on-air light is on, and I say, okay, we just need to chill here for a second until they go to break, and then I'll bring you in, no big deal. And he gets really close to me, like an inch away nose to nose and starts spouting all these expletives that I will not repeat here. But basically the gist of it is you bring me up here and ask me to be on your show and you're not even ready for me. How dare you treat me like this goes on for like 30 seconds. I'm like, I'm 21. You know, like, what do you say to that? He's 38 years old. He's as old as I am right now, except he's much larger than me. And he just I'm silent. Like, what do you do? And he just lets it hang there for a second in the air. And he's like, no, nah, I'm just screwing with you. Hey, what's that machine do? <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh, my favorite baseball story.
2: It's good to know John Burkett, who actually won 166 games. Uh, so speaking of guys who had more longevity and quality to their career than I thought, John Burkett. Also, according to Wikipedia, he was given the nickname Sheets during his days with the Braves because of his organizing pools for games in the clubhouse. So I guess, you know, he was uh, known for, uh, you know, his... Uh, Action. Uh, Anyway, John Bergen, interesting fellow. Um, I'm just going to run through a few more here, actually. I won't even get to quiz anymore, just because um, I found uh, in the 92 set, I was caught by this one, Uh, 1992 Jeff Johnson, random dude from the Yankees. I just happened to notice on his card a mistake on the card. It says, Jeff attended the University of North Carolina, quote-unquote, Durham. No, the University of North Carolina is not in Durham. So I'm now fact-checking <laughs> 1992 <laughs> top cards. It is in Chapel Hill. Um, and then clearly someone making the 1991 set really wanted to have some fun uh, with pictures because um, the photos are – I found a bunch of just totally random photos. For example, the photo for Mark McGuire's card is him sliding into third base because, you know, Mark McGuire, really known for – going first to third on singles or looking out triples, uh, Mike Scott's card, uh, the former Astros ace is him bunting, which I know Michael Clare, uh, would be, uh, our, our colleague, Michael Clare would be proud of because no one loves a bunt, uh, quite like Michael Clare. Speaking of Michael Clare before, right before we, we podcast today, uh, Mike tweeted something to the effect that, let me define the exact tweet. The exact tweet was, uh, Michael Clare, at, uh, earlier today, he, he tweeted, the number of terrible podcasts that people are going to record during quarantine is truly frightening. Well, Mike, we hope we are living up to that uh, that standard. <laughs> speaking, can't, of our, can't. Uh, speaking of other great photos, Zane Smith, the former Pirates lefty, is just sitting there holding a clipboard, charting pitches, looking about as miserable as you can possibly imagine. I will tweet out some of these photos for listeners if you're curious to see uh, what I'm actually talking about. The last one is probably the best, one of the best baseball cards I've ever seen. We mentioned Robin Ventura uh, during earlier uh, in the podcast. When I talked about the Grand Grand Slam single, this is his rookie card, and it's him wearing the nineteen like nineteen nineteen White Sox throwback uniforms, which I think was like around the start of like the throwback uniform craze when teams started wearing them. And it's just like such an awesome look. So uh, good on you, uh, nineteen ninety one Top editors, for uh, having some uh, sense of humor with your uh, and creativity with your with your photo choices.
1: Can, can we go back to Jeff Johnson for a minute? Um, yes. Since you were talking about him, I looked him up, and I, I'm going to try to give this 30-year-old copy editor uh, a little bit of, of the benefit of the doubt here. Jeff Johnson was born in Durham, North Carolina. Oh. So, uh, maybe there's that, at least. Uh, Jeff Johnson, by the way, we're talking about horrible teams that we loved. I can't tell you how many 1991 Yankee games I went to with my grandfather and my father. That team lost 91 games. Because, like, Don Mattingly was her, and the pitching staff was, uh, I swear, this is a legitimate New York Yankees starting rotation. Scott Sanderson, Jeff Johnson, Tim Leary, Wade Taylor, Pascual Perez, and Dave Island. That team was awful, and I watched so much of that team in person.
2: <laughs> and they got the number six pick in the 92 draft, and they took Derek Jeter. So you could say that Jeff Johnson was partially responsible for the Yankees getting Derek Jeter, and... Creating a dynasty. One
1: hundred and twenty-seven innings, five ninety-five ERA, and it seems like a different sport from like a, just a different century, I guess. which it was, uh, four point four strikeouts per nine. <laughs> that's and eleven hits per nine. Good, holy lord. Um, I think that's our show for this week. We are, you know, hopefully going to try to do this more often. Um, I don't want to speak directly for Matt, but I know that I have enjoyed for the last forty-five minutes talking about <laughs> baseball nonsense and not staring at the uh, unending horror of my Twitter newsfeed. So I hope you enjoyed that as well. Um, Definitely. We're working on getting getting some better microphones to our homes. So if there's any sound quality issues, uh, let me know. But we're going to try to work on that. I forgot to say StatCast is now powered by Google Cloud. uh, So please pay attention to that. This has been our show uh, for this week, for the first part of this week. Thanks so much for listening and take care out there.